their lives are different from those of the other people. And they do not seek the same God. Thirdly, they do not seek the same practice of piety. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day on which we can be here from your word. We ask you to open our hearts and open our minds so that we can understand and comprehend what the word has for us this morning. Pray that you would do your task well by speaking your word to us. In Christ's name we pray. So in order 
order to achieve this, I must appeal to King Ahasuerus in a manner in which he is willing to receive my recommendation. I need to help Ahasuerus see it my way. And then you remember the warning that is given later out in the text, and you'll see that in the dilemma for Esther, on what she is going to do in her role as queen. You cannot simply appear according to Persian law. You cannot appear before the king and just decide, hey, this is how it's going to be. I have a request. Um, To do so is to literally risk life and limb. You would be most likely executed for having simply just walked in and decided to what would be the equivalent of an Oval Office. I established my own meeting and I walked in the door and said, this is what we're going to do with the Jewish population. Um, Just the hubris alone would bring execution. So Haman has to figure out. So then that's what then kicks off the scene of the casting of the pearl or the casting of the lot. It's simple, like we need, as I mentioned last week, we need the stars to align. We need some sort of divination, some sort of energy or faith that gives us a sense of momentum for success. So then there's the casting of lots. They finally arrive at a particular day and month where they believe there will be the execution of the Jews. We figured out the month. And you notice what that is. It's the month after month till the 12th month. Which is then going to be the month of Adar. That, that's when the, that's when it's going to kick off. Now, with the idea of a date and time, Haman needs to now figure out the approach. We feel good as a group about Adar. We, we, we feel good about it. The, you know, the dice came that good. We're moving forward. Now we just need to have where to play ball. So again, with the date set, then notice the text, he finds the courage to approach. And I want to spend a few minutes on just um, the, the work of Haman here as a character and uh, kind of notice ancient politics at play in the work of Haman. Notice the text with the month set, now it's moving on to somehow to solidify uh, the power of the kingdom. We need to have to wear it. Uh, look at verse 8. So what they said all the time, the, the month, verse 8, then Haman said, King There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Then he moves forward. So, 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 and, and we'll handle each one of these taxes to Haman. But, but then once, once he, he kind of Sets up the context. He then kind of moves for persuasion. Notice to have to ask, their laws are different from those of every other people. Taking the picture. Then he adds, and they do not speak the king's law. So putting it all together then as he moves to persuade, just so that it's not in the king's prophet or, or to the king's prophet to tolerate him. Considering this text very carefully, here Haman shows his willingness as a political official to say and do anything to receive the king's permission to annihilate the king. As you consider this text, he's 
by he. This is somewhat parallel to the modern-day politics that we have been accustomed to as well. But we think it's a political movement where the biggest of our time. Power in politics is not a lot like religion. If you notice piece by piece, Haman makes his case against the Jews, or we could just then more broadly say, those he does not like, with a series of falsehoods, innuendos, half-truths, and outright lies. Again, this is an unfortunate role of politics in the city of man. Notice very carefully, I want to show you these falsehoods, innuendos, half-truths, and an outright lie. Here is Haman makes his appeal to annihilate the Jews. And then for you to also pair in your mind how not a lot has changed, even nowadays, in modern politics. Notice these principles, each one of them. The first one that Haman makes as he speaks of the Jews in his approach to Hezarius. Notice the very first, there is a certain people scattered abroad. That is, number one, Haman's tactic is to hide the identity of the people from the Jews. Notice he doesn't d- describe the people that he's going after, and he doesn't reference Mordecai as his, pri- as his, primal, uh, his primary uh, enemy. He remains in ambiguity. It, this is, again, to make the annihilation of the individuals inconsequential. There, you, you, I, I hope you can understand. How can I, how can I help him be uh, so persuaded towards what I particularly am interested in, the annihilation of the Jews? Well, again, you might want to be a little more winsome in the way you go about it. I think we ought to get rid of all the Jews. Well, 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 well that might not go over well. You know Okay, the path that I will take is I will be a bit more covered in the ambiguity. You know, there is a certain people scattered abroad, and they're dispersed in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Again, he hides the identity of God's people to the king. This is for the purpose of making their annihilation seem in unsuccessful. Share this with you to consider more fully as you listen to modern discourse and think of principleless politicians who live in ambiguity and go to see sometimes. It has been stated in the history of the church regarding theological heresy, but nonetheless I apply it here for your thoughts considering how Canaan acts here toward the people of God. And then for you to consider modern day discourse. Why is there such a against defining matters. Why do we elevate discourse only in ambiguity, where discourse is almost impossible? Again, it makes the thing we seek to get rid of seem inconsequential if we simply live in ambiguity and fail to define. We might not understand that he is for the reason. Again, I mentioned to you the state in the history of the church, ambiguity, quote, ambiguity is the fortress of heresy. So it is with Haman the same way. Uh, you know, there's just a, a certain people scattered all over the place. Good people. Uh, 
Thank you. 
or not that they won't assimilate as a fact. That's what draws attention to their laws are different from every other people. By identifying that, Haman is here implying that those who don't obey the empire are automatically seen as subversive people. Then I lay that exercise to consider the modern day politics of not really seeing as much as the first empire. Those who don't submit to the empire are somehow automatically subversive people. Their laws are different. That's one thing. They fail to assimilate. That they don't look, smell, sound like every other people in the kingdom. They're subversive, you see. Their laws are different. But then he hits this crescendo with an outright lie. They don't keep the king's law. Now, again, if we consider the practice of the people of God, whether it be outside of a particular place of Susa, the city's capital, or we think of them there in the capital city of Susa, in the Persian Empire, we simply have no evidence within the text or anywhere within the book that those Jewish people living in the Persian Empire there in the city of Susa were in any way lawbreakers. We don't have evidence where they were breaking this law and they were refusing to obey or submit to this decree. We don't have anything. The only piece we have that indicates we by a broad brush stroke, came as a successor lawbreaker because Mordecai was not a This is enough for Haman to exploit to suggest the people of God gathered in the, uh, in the uh, Persian Empire are lawbreaking citizens. You see, Haman is seeking to misrepresent the people of God. Washington is representing as a great threat to the welfare of the Persian Empire in order that he may fulfill his aim, which is their annihilation. That's where it goes in the text, in the purpose clause that follows. They won't keep your laws. You know there are a bunch of unassimilated lawbreakers. So I want to suggest, in fact, say to you that Haman, it is not your problem. Again, as we think of politics, just for a moment, I don't wish to describe too narrowly for you, but just more generally in terms of principles of thought and practice. It's important as we look here in this episode and we consider it in our own lives now, living as children on the way, it's important as we think of politics that it is significant to recognize that human beings need government. We need government. We need membership. We need rule of law. We need governors to enforce law. It is important that we recognize, even here in the corruption of politics, or we see it in our time, in our day, it's the same. People need government. And consistent with this is God's ordination of it. 
talk about the three spheres of God's sovereignty and the way He ordained it within providence, and we were, and we think there are simply three: there is His family, there is His church, and there is civil society. Men and women, human beings, need government. It starts in the family. It continues on for the people of God in the church and for all common citizen beings that remain to the state. There will be laws and sentences that we would obey those laws. But again, here we see with Haman, so often we must consider now just how dangerous a government can be. Wicked government, as was the case with Edward, as we in just a moment will just unravel, or we consider with Haman, or we consider a modern day regime. Wicked government can be not only unreliable for its people, but it can be even frightening and dangerous. The argument for the victim is that they get rid of them. The argument for the victim is we must use them for God to ordain them. We must pray for a righteous God. Notice the danger to look here in this particular regime, the frightening and the dangerous side with Haman, yeah, but also consider Ahasuerus as the king. Look in verse 9. As he's made his case in verse 8, and then he moves on to make the, the, the kind of the summary at the end of 8, so it's not in your prophet to tolerate it. Notice, beginning in verse 9, if it pleased the king, this, this, is, this is my point, if certain people, I, they'll go unnamed, they scattered abroad, and they're dispersed all amongst all the provinces. Their laws are different, they don't keep yours, it's not your profit to tolerate them. Well, what do you get at? Well, uh, this. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. And those talents may be put into the king's treasury. So, the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman. Which we've all known now as good readers to perk up yet again as we're tied into the main plot of the struggle between God and the Amalekites. Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Well, what does that mean? Summarily, the enemy of the Jews. So the king just gave the signet ring to the enemy of the Jews. Verse 11, and the king said to Haman, all right, the money is given to you. And uh, the, the people also, the population, the citizens, everybody. And uh, do with them as we give you. And again, I draw a parallel to modern politics. If you consider, again, the nature of power and wickedness, they go hand in hand, very little has changed. Haman knows then what we know now, that it's that money talks. I think we often said, now, follow the money. And it was true then, as it is true now, and it will be true going forward. Again, you recall at this point in time, uh, Haman knows exactly the, uh, the lever to pull with King Ahasuerus on the idea of money talks. 
Because if you go back at the end, uh, right where chapter 2 is emerging, historically we understand at that time the empire began a rebuilding phase. Remember, there was an ill-fated attempt to invade Greece and to conquer them. It didn't work out. It had to wear it off. So then he comes back from uh, his, his beat down from Greece, and he's got his tail between his legs, and he doesn't know how to be consoled. And so those who are within his administration rec- recommend that he continue a debaucherous lifestyle. That's where it kicks off. You know what? We need to find more more women. We need to bring them over and bring them in. And he needs to just kind of be set free from all of his cares and live in debauchery. That will raise his, his, his energy level. That will make him feel better. Because, again, he's trying to cope with the fact that the empire is on edge, and, and he brought it there by an ill-fated attempt to invade Greece. The empire is in a rebuilding phase. Resources were absolutely lost. Kids were left behind. That's where it's now, a few years after, is still in this issue where money is greatly needed if the empire is to recuperate. Haman knows this. Haman knows this, and the common citizen knows it within the economy. The economy is not doing well. We need to fix the economy. So says the individual living in the empire. Haman knows this from the administrative side as a member of the administration himself. So he recommends, how can I succeed in Israel in order to destroy Mordecai and all of those people who are his inheritance? How can I get rid of these people? Well, it's the same principle that exists money always talks. Particularly here in the context, Haman knows that we need money bad. What I will do is I will secure funds for the treasury. The Jesus slave all moves and allow me to wipe these people. Of course, in the context of Haman's argument here, he throws out an exaggerated figure. You see the number, he, he, he strikes real high, hopes not come into Rome. I will pay 10,000 pounds of silver into the hands of him. Where are you going to come up if war is costly? If I get you people, and I give you some initial resource to mobilize against the Jews, where are you going to come up with 10,000 talents to reimburse and then to overinflate the treasury of the people? Haman knows exactly precisely where he's going to get it. Notice verse 13. Letters are sent out by the couriers to all the king's provinces. Now, remember the number of the Persian Empire provinces at this point where he said these people are scattered everywhere. We really have about 127 provinces. Going out and everybody's in different dialects. Everybody's going to be able to see it closely and be like, this is what we have to do on the 12th line to make this day, and this is what has to happen. We're going to do this and take this decisive action against these people. All 127 provinces get the notice. Again, Haman is pledging an overinflated number to reimburse the king. How will he achieve it? Well, here's the instructions uh, on the edict destroy and kill to annihilate all of Because remember, I cast lots for this day. I figured out really when we're going to strike right. It's the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month they got. And then you notice, here's his pledge, or here's his scheme in order to pay the treasury. I'm going to plunder all their land. Every piece of inheritance they have. 
every heirloom, every family piece, every piece and special accumulated wealth in the industry, every single thing you need to have, you're going to have it. And you're going to plunder it from your kids and your grandkids. I'm going to then take all that water, I'm going to pay back all of it. Thank you. 
Jared also made some of the amendments. What? And, and again, you, you see how politics and power can get in to drive wedges purposely between people, purposely between people. To not allow their society to galvanize together if they don't want to be leaders, if they don't want their power. Their strategy and power and a gaining of wealth by dividing the people. This is not something that happens here and doesn't happen now. It's real. And we must be wise to recognize the question. As you see there then, at the end, you see, uh, at the end of verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued from Judah, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. We'll speak more on that perhaps another time, but look at the last statement of our book this morning. The city of Judah was thrown into chaos. And that makes sense. Take serious Paul's stand that we pray for our government. Number two, 
How do we bridge the gap between this text and political power in our own lives, lived as the people of God, pilgrims, on the way together in the shadows of an empire? Number two, as you pray, call to mind that the only government which is eternal is the government of Christ. Be encouraged there. As the only government which is eternal is the government of Christ. You can see here of the Persian Empire or any of the other great empires of antiquity which no longer exist. And if they do, they are mere shadows of their former selves. But this is not so with the church of Jesus Christ. Whether we follow it from Abraham and the giving of the covenant, and we move it all the way across the temptation, right through the story of Esther, all the way on to the book of Revelation, what do we find about the government of Christ? But that his church moves from strength unto strength until that day when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our God. In close, let me read to you that particular text by way of encouragement as we think of the investment of the kingdom of God. Indeed, we pray for continuing in time and we pray to hasten thy kingdom come. I read for you at the end as we draw near to the time of redemptive history wrapping up and the glory of God the only kingdom indeed which is eternal Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and we shall reign with him forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worshipped saying, we give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, who is, who was, who has taken your great power and has begun to reign. The nation's rage, again, whether you think of it as the Persian Empire raging against the people of God, or you think of any other empire throughout the time of history, as this age does pass away, and this age which has become emergent, it's the same story. The nation's rage. But your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and the saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying. Father, we pray that you would give us constitution to withstand these crafty schemes and arguments that seem to live in ambiguities that divide families, church, and people. You would enable us to see that we would be people informed and shaped in the ethics and the teachings of your word, and we would be those who have been first set free by the true gospel offering of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But then wed to your church as your people, we would mature and grow and develop to 
live the way that you intend, that we would move into a community where embracing separation spreads from hatred and for the freedom of this world and its empire because the kingdom of our Lord is coming. Help us think wisely about our lives here at Green Square Regional Church. When we think about the providential care, concern, provision, 